worthy. All the earth is filled with your glory, glory. We give you glory, glory. Carpenter's Way. I want to let you know that there is a new members class uh, starting right now in the uh, library. So if you want to, uh, to join them in there, if you have any interest in uh, knowing a little more about Carpenter's Way or becoming a member, that's the, uh, that's the place to go. So it's starting right now in the library. Otherwise, please stand to your feet and greet someone. Say good morning. that we never should be. 
sweet relief from the grip of these chains. Like hinges straining from the wind, my heart no longer can keep from singing all that is within me, Christ, for you everybody. What a crazy 12 hours we've had, huh? 
And uh, we're going to, I think we're going to take a moment and we want to pray for those in Alto. Alto. I say it different every time. And uh, you know that family that lost two children? I just, I, I just can't imagine this morning what they must be feeling and thinking. And uh, everybody, you know, one of, the, one of the weird things about moving uh, into a small community is, man, when there's a tragedy, everybody, everybody knows somebody who knows somebody. It's just so connected. So let's take a moment and let's pray for that community and that family. And, and uh, let, let's just do that this morning. Father, um, thank you for keeping us safe. And, and thank you that the power's on here. And uh, Lord, um, we never know what to expect from these storms, and uh, it's certainly a dangerous thing. And, and last night, Father, one of our sister communities was pretty devastated, and uh, you see the pictures. And, Lord, I, I, I thank you that uh, you are there to lean on. Um, I thank you that, that we can cry out to you and we can trust in you, even if we don't understand your purpose in things. And I, I, my heart this morning just goes out to this, this family that lost these two children, I can't imagine waking up uh, and, and with, in the new life reality of theirs. And, Lord, I don't know who they are. I don't know what their relationship is with you uh, or your people. But I pray, Father, this morning that they would experience a lot of love. That's certainly not going to fill the gap. But what will fill the gap is your Holy Spirit. And so we ask you right now to minister to them and be with them. And Lord, there's folks even in our church that have trees in their yards and uh, in their houses and uh, Lord, as they, as they begin to work their way out, I pray that their hearts would be hopeful. Um, and I thank you that even here this morning we can come together. And I know that there's a lot of questions in the churches in, in that community. And, and we just ask you to be with, with them in a very special way today, Father. And, and with us as well. We think of uh, Chad and Teresa that got to, uh, uh, got to officially adopt Cece this week. And uh, to stand before the same judge that, uh, that gave Mia over to them. We're just so, life goes on, pain, joy, it just goes on, and, and I'm so thankful that we have you, I'm so thankful that we have you as our hope. So be our hope this morning, and, and, and gather with us, and speak to us, those who are in this room, those watching on the internet, Father God, help us to focus on you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you heard me mention a moment ago that the reason, you notice Chad's not on the stage, but uh, the reason Chad isn't on the stage is because they are officially adopted their second child this weekend uh, before a court. So, so Charlie is now theirs and ours to disciple. So <laughs> I like that's so fun, the clapping. If the Eagles showed up this morning, we'd really clap. But it's also good to see Hayden Havard on the drums. Seriously, that's what you do in your concerts. Hayden is a professional musician right now, traveling all over greater Austin. And up north, right? Didn't you do a tour this year? You're going to. You're going to do a tour. So it is good to have you here back, little Havard. I'm, I'm old, so I can call you little Havard. And Shelby and her husband are here. And gosh, it's like home, home Sunday. And uh, it's, uh, anyway, so good to have you here, dude. Dale and Sue Gargas are here. That's right. Welcome home. Welcome home from North Carolina. So, and I know I'm, I miss it. Is there somebody else I miss? We don't ever do this. I could make you stand up if you're visiting so we could embarrass you. Do you remember doing that as kids? Do you remember, did you guys have, like, the badges that they would make visitors wear, these long things, these cloth things? And it's like, oh, a visitor, let's be extra friendly to them. <laughs> so. Okay. 
Anyway, enough of cynicism. Let's open our worship guides. There's some things I want to highlight. All right, so Easter celebration at Carver's Way begins this morning uh, in, in, in our children's program. And when I, uh, after the worship is done, we'll dismiss our kids through fifth grade this morning, and they are having Easter stations. They're going to, man, we're going through the crucifixion. We're going through the resurrection because everything we do is discipleship. Everything we do is growing up in our knowledge of the Lord. So our children's ministry is going to be doing that this morning. So if you have a kid here this morning through fifth grade, you're going to dismiss them when we dismiss the GPS, and that is, uh, that's going to be a great morning. But our schedule this week is Friday is our Good Friday service. That'll be at 3 o'clock Friday afternoon. It'll be over at 3.30, but it's a, it's a time uh, we'll sing some hymns. We're going to read the, sto- uh, the crucifixion story together, We're gonna, uh, the scriptures. The service itself is about 20 minutes long, and then after we have communion, uh, if you so choose to participate. And we'd encourage you to bring somebody. But this is, uh, again, Friday from 3 to 3.30, and that's not about the resurrection. That is about the crucifixion of Christ. It's very solemn, very liturgical, so we encourage you to come for that. Again, 3 to 3.30 on Friday, and then next Sunday morning, uh, we are going to celebrate uh, at 9.30. I was just looking at the schedule to make sure it's accurate. So next Sunday morning at 9.30, we're going to have our Easter celebration, our resurrection celebration. It's going to be very poignant, so you'll want to be here. Usually the room's full, so... Try to be here at 9.30. I know that's really hard for all of us. If you set your clock 15 minutes earlier, you'll actually be on time. So uh, this is East Texas. This is, what, I guess this is what we do. But that's next Sunday at 9.30. And uh, it's, a, it's a great Sunday to bring somebody who may not know the Lord or kind of wondering why the resurrection matters and the crisis of their life. We're going to really hit that hard. And, and it's going to be, it's gonna be great. So plan on next Sunday with us. There's no Bible studies after, so y'all can go to lunch or do what you need to do after. Um, as was already mentioned, right now in the library, we have our new members class. We call it Carpenter's Way 101. If you've been coming to Carpenter's Way and you're interested in becoming a member or you want to know more about us, that's the place to do that. You'll get to meet most of the staff and the elders and all. And uh, you can get up and sneak out um, maybe as the offering's being passed and, and if you'd like to join them in there. But we'd, we'd sure love to have you in there. So um, anyway, that pretty much does it for the announcements. Oh, I do want to mention one more thing. Men, we have our, our picnic coming up. A week from Saturday, Saturday, a week after, we want you to come to that. And uh, we're going to have hamburgers and hot dogs. And all the information you need is here in, is on here. The map is on the back. Um, a chance to meet other guys. We play games. We shoot Coke cans. Um, uh, it says skeet on here, but actually what we do is we shake up cans of Coke that are outdated, and we launch them, and we shoot them out of the air. It is so cool. It is so redneck, but it is awesome. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty much like that. It's like, wow. Okay, anyway, that's a, w- a week from Saturday. If you have, if you're first time Carver's Way, if you've been here 50 years, that's longer than the church been in existence, or if you're on the internet and you want to join us, man, we'd love to have you come. So please plan on joining us. The information is here or uh, on our Facebook page. Um, a- other things, just please read through here. Uh, you, can, you can read on that, and, and I want to ask our ushers to come forward at this time so that we can prepare for our offering. Um, the offering is part of our worship. We give back to the Lord as he's given to us. And uh, with this money, as I say every week, we support missions across the globe and finance our own ministries here at Carpenter's Way. So uh, that's that's why we do this. If you're visiting, we ask you not to give. This is for those who attend here regularly. We're just awfully glad you're here and, and hope you're encouraged in your relationship with the Lord. So let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you again that we can gather. Thank you that we can lean on you when, when we don't understand stuff. Uh, Father, we should lean on you even when we think we understand it. But, Lord, on on mornings like this, after storms, 
I thank you that you're present. I thank you that you bring comfort and encouragement. And I, I ask you, Lord, to speak to us in a, speci- in a special way this morning. Thank you for our team as they lead us in worship. Uh, again, help us to focus on you. Thank you um, for the gifts we're about to receive, the financial gifts. We will be careful to use them for your glory. And we pray you bless those who participate. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. If you're comfortable with it, after the offering plate has passed you, please stand and worship with us. At your name the mountain shaken crumble at your name the oceans roar and tumble at your name angels will bow the earth will rejoice your people cry out Lord of All of this is a gift from God.
who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest without you. My 
Salvation's completed through Him and Him alone. For when He had finished, He sat down on His throne to reign You ain't forevermore. 
may be seated. Again, we're going to dismiss everybody through fifth grade at this time. Uh, it's going to be a great morning. they got a lot planned to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord this morning. Going through the story, everybody will be in here next week, so uh, we wanted to do that. I love that song. Uh, I don't, somebody was asking me this morning uh, my thoughts, you know, just you know, how could God allow two children to die? I, I don't know but I can rest in him. Um, God doesn't uh, choose to explain everything to us, but we do see through the scriptures that he's good. His plan in the end is good, but boy, it can be painful in the, med- in the mi- middle of the time, right? Um, so I trust him. You just hang in there and rest in him. You do not have to answer for God. And I, I just want to encourage you in that. You don't have to answer for him. You don't even have to understand him, but you do have to trust him. And uh, that's the hardest part of the Christian life. Being forgiven is easy. Trusting in him after forgiveness is not so much. Uh, we are right now, uh, for those of you visiting with us this morning or watching on the Internet for the first time, we're in a study on who, uh, asking the question, who is this man? And I'm <clears throat> talking about Jesus Christ, obviously. Um, I, I know that it's uh, hard to believe a church would re-ask those questions, but let's be honest, <clears throat> being wrong on someone as important as Jesus Christ isn't worth it even if you grew up Baptist. <clears throat> it's not worth it. Somebody asked me this week of all the religions, why did I choose Christianity and, you know, is it really that different than others? And I just want to make it clear that I don't make enough mon- money to be wrong on this one question, how must a man or a woman have eternal life? I, I've studied, I've looked, and and, G- and it's not Baptist. I, you know that. I'm, I'm a lousy Baptist. I, I am a follower of Jesus. And I encourage you to follow him. And to do that, <clears throat> part of what we have to do is know him as he presents himself to us. And that takes courage. I, I know it takes courage. Because a lot of what is taught or what we think or what is written or sung are, the, are good feel stuff. You know, We want to feel good. And so we, we take pieces of the story that we like um, and we ignore the rest. And, and, and the truth is um, that, that a lot of what Jesus Christ did uh, was very difficult on his followers, and today's story is one of those examples, and you'll see in a moment. Um, so if, if you're joining with us today for the first time, we're going to be in John 4 this morning. What we're doing is a chronological look at the life of Jesus through all four Gospels, and we're all the way into John chapter 4, so we are really moving along. We're in our 11th week. Um, it's only going to take us 16 years. I've actually laid it out. So in 16 years, we should be at the crucifixion. Uh, but uh, anyway, 
Uh, I, I, that was a joke. Thank you for laughing. Dr. George McLeod, who was a minister of the Church of Scotland from 1895 to 19, uh, to 18, anyway, 1895 said this, I simply argue that the cross should be raised at the center of the marketplace as well as in the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town's garbage heap, at a crossroad so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut, thieves curse, and soldiers gamble. But that is where he died. And that is what he died about. So that is where churchmen ought to be uh, ought to be about as well. Let me read that last line again because I just messed it up. So that is where churchmen ought to be and what churchmen ought to be about. As we continue to ponder the question of who is this man through our chronological look at the life of Jesus, I think it's important for us to be clear that not only, and we, we love, because, because our brains are in 30-minute segments or less and books and all, we have a tendency to jump to the teachings of Jesus, the red stuff, and, and we don't understand where and why and what he's saying. The context of, in which Jesus ministers is just as important for us to understand what Jesus was about as what he actually said. It's important for us to stand back. And, and remember when he called the disciples to himself, Jesus actually said, come and see. Just come and see. He didn't say walk an aisle. He didn't say, he didn't say uh, you know, at the very beginning, give everything to me. He said, come and see who I am. Come and check me out. And that is an important call to children of God even today. Come and see. Come and observe. And it takes an enormous amount of discipline. Having, having heard the stories of this book, and especially a story you're going to hear this morning, it takes an enormous amount of discipline to stand back from the words of Jesus and just watch what he's doing, why he's doing it, where he's doing it. It takes discipline because your brain wants to go to the conclusion, make an application, and go on with life. But if we're going to allow Jesus Christ to become real to us, and I mean more real than doctrine of the church, then we have to observe him in action. And that's what the disciples were doing. We're still very early in Jesus' ministry. A lot has happened, but we're still very early in Jesus' ministry. Within the first few months of actually Jesus calling the disciples to himself. I mean, in these few short months, he's been baptized. He's been in the wilderness with Satan being tempted. He's gathered his disciples together. They've watched him turn water into wine. They've been on vacation with his family with him. He's turned the table, tables over in the temple and run off the sacrificial animals as Passover week was beginning. He's had an amazing conversation with Nic Nicodemus about how a person is able to be part of the kingdom of God. And he's done some amazing, supernatural, miraculous things in the crowd during Passover and has gained quite a following. The disciples, again, are only a few months into following Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly, but it's fair to believe it's probably four or five months into his ministry with them. And their new rabbi is blowing their mind. The first three weeks, if you, take, if you just look at everything we've studied, the first three weeks of their ministry with him is exactly what they expected. I mean, they watch him turn water to wine. He's spending time with his family. Everything is celebrant. They're having a great time together. But man, the fourth week, they take off to Passover. They expect great things. And next thing, Jesus is turning tables over. And he is perplexing to them. Instead of making inroads with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he alienates them. 
Even Nicodemus, who Jesus refers to as the greatest teacher of the Jews, actually comes at night to, to build bridges, to figure out what Jesus is about. And Jesus just cuts him off at the path and says, unless a man is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. That must have rocked these guys. Because they thought Jesus was going to get the people to rise up. And you see this throughout his ministry with them. They expect Jesus to rise up and set up a kingdom of which he is the king and that the disciples are his council and all the Jews get to rule the world. That is what they had been praying for. That's what they expected the, the, next, the, the Messiah to do. They expected him to do that. But instead, Jesus alienated the very people that they thought he would build together into quite an incredible team. This story continues that. John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. The Pharisees were beginning to get increasingly uncomfortable with Jesus and his message as many Jews were now beginning to follow him. In fact, he was starting to get a bigger following than John the baptizer. To the Pharisees, John the baptizer was a problem because he spoke against them, but he wasn't a major problem because they could spin, they could spin their truth. They could spin him as just another man. And besides, he didn't actually say he was the Messiah, but Jesus was different. Jesus not only spoke a different message to them about redemption, but he actually presented the truth that you could be saved without being a Jew. And on top of it, he, unlike John the baptizer, actually claimed to be the Messiah, the sent one of God. And to validate it, he was doing miracles that people were fascinated by and made them want to follow him. So history tells us that the Pharisees began to make plans to discredit him, if not do away with him altogether. And since it wasn't Jesus' time to die, he leaves that region and heads over to the other side of the lake, from Judea to Galilee. There's three possible routes that Jesus and the disciples can take. They can go along the coast, they can go across the Jordan River, or they can take the direct route that no Jew, a good Jew, would ever take because it took you straight through Samaria. Any Jew with any respect for Jewish history, culture, or morals would have nothing to do with a half-breed Samaritan. And this journey, the direct route, took you right through Samaritan towns. To a good Jew, the Samaritans were worse than any Gentile, for they were the they were the children of the disobedient Jewish heritage, the people ahead of them. In 727 B.C., Israel is ransacked by uh, the, the Hebrew nation, is overtaken by the Assyrians, and unfaithful Jews actually give in and intermarry to some of the Assyrians. Their children are called Samaritans. God commanded the Jews in the Mosaic Covenant not to marry outside of the Jewish nation, and these people had done just that. The Samaritans were a mixed-race people which grew out of covenant-breaking marriages between disobedient Jews and the Assyrians, as I've already mentioned. The children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of these disobedient Jews were rejected and even hated by the genetically pure Jews. Take a breath. What you're looking at, what you've heard, what you're going to see is unadulterated prejudice. And the New Testament is full of it. I know that the guilt and shame of what has happened in our country in the past makes you think that this is the most prejudicial place on earth, and it's not. The world has always, every man and woman, has always carried prejudices with them. And this prejudice, the Jews against the Samaritans, and I want to add the Samaritans against the Jews, was at a feverish pitch at this time in history. 
To be clear, prejudice has always existed, and that is the underpinnings of this whole story that you're familiar with. Although the Samaritans attempted to keep their Jewish heritage and religion, they were forced to morph, morph it into some sort of Samaritan religion where instead of worshiping at the temple, which was required by the Jewish law, they would worship at a mountain called Mount Gerizim, which is close to the place where Jesus stops here in the story. The fires of prejudices between these people is so intense that it was actually common to hear a Jew pray in the temple, may the, may the Samaritans never be raised at the resurrection of God. Basically prayed that there would be no Samaritans saved ever. But Jesus, <laughs> as you know from personal experience, and as the disciples can already tell from their short time with him, was not here to serve Jewish prejudices or even make sure he didn't break the cultural or religious norms of their time. Jesus was on a divinely appointed schedule to accomplish a divinely appointed plan, even when it meant going against what was expected of him as a Jewish rabbi. And this is the background of the story that you're so familiar with. John chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to a Samaritan village uh, of Sychar, near the field of Jacob, gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Jesus chose the Samaritan route rather than the acceptable but longer other route. He traveled the road no good Jew would travel, right into Samaritan territory. And I want to be clear, Jesus did not take the direct route so he could get there faster to where he's going. You're going to see that in a few moments. Jesus took this route because there was a woman that his father wanted him to talk with, a woman that no Jew would talk with, and he wanted him to meet him so that he could offer her eternal life. It was a divine appointment by God that the disciples would need to see. Remember, he's teaching them not just with his mouth, but with his life. He's showing them the disciples and us are the heirs to the truth that God has left us to tell others. These disciples, as I mentioned last week, will someday be apostles, which means sent ones. And they would have to understand not just the message, but the depth and the heart change that takes place when you're a servant of the Most High God. These disciples thought that they were walking from Judea to Galilee. Jesus, however, was on a task to meet a lost woman in a lost village of people who were also lost that the Jews hated, but his father loved so much that he sent him to give them eternal life offer with. Are you learning about Jesus in this study? I mean, are you really learning? Are you getting beyond? Is God rocking your world with the things that you're seeing? I mean, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' position. And you, you are very much there because we have been told our whole lives to what to expect from Jesus Christ. And he's nothing like we were told. I remember being, uh, growing up in a church in an evangelical small church in Southern California. I went to Tim LaHaye's church for a while, you know, and David Jeremiah then came. In the middle, we went to another church. And I remember at that church being taught that the mark of Cain from Genesis was actually the color of a person's skin. Uh, some of you are nodding, others of you breathed lightly, some of you even groaned, but you know many of you heard that. In case you're not clear, that's a lie. There's nothing biblical about that. It's amazing how we read our prejudices into Scripture, and it's the same level of prejudice that you see here. It's really, really important that you understand that. You know what else is important for you to understand? That as you watch Jesus, you're going to find out that it's not the crusade, it's not the big events that Jesus valued. It's the one-on-one -on -one time with people. Jesus didn't come to save thousands. He came to save one at a time. He came to sit down with inappropriate people like 
Zacchaeus or Mary Magdalene or this woman that we're going to read about. He came to sit with them and tell them what he offered so that they could have life. To Jesus' people, individual, little people, gross people, they were the point of his ministry. Because as you know from John 3.16, the Father sent him because he loves them so that whoever, and that's singular, whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. John 4, verse 7 reads, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Remember, Jesus is sitting on the side of the well. And Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Don't read this like the Bible. Read it like people talk. Why are you asking me for something? What are you doing? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you, for you. Think about that statement. If you only knew the gift God has for you, man, and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. You can hear in this, this conversation the awkwardness of the text, the weirdness of the moment. We can never afford to, to forget why our Lord came. We can't afford to forget that because it's life-changing. In Luke 19, verse 10, Luke records this, the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, came to seek and save those who were lost. The Samaritan woman was about as lost as you could get, and Jesus went to this well in this city to simply sit and talk with her. Again, a good Jew would never have been caught dead on this road near this town talking with this woman, but Jesus, that's why he came. I know that every week we have a group of people who watch online because you wouldn't don the door of the church. Whether you won't be accepted in the church or you don't like the church, the reasons are yours, but I want you to know that Jesus came seeking you you. Whether you're a pedophile, a homosexual, an adulterer, a Mormon, a Baptist, Jesus came seeking you. Not in groups of hundreds or dozens, but you. This situation with this woman at the well isn't unique to Jesus. It's what he does. Take note, family. So far in our journey, Jesus has not made peace with the religious leaders. He rebuked them for what they had done with his message and the ministry entrusted them. He offended the great teacher Nicodemus by telling him that he was not born again, that he would not see the kingdom of God unless he was. And yet here, Jesus comes to seek and save this one woman who is totally inappropriate. She's immoral. He's going to point that out. She is, in fact, what many Jews thought she was. I want you to take a breath here. You understand that after the resurrection, it's Mary Magdalene that Jesus told to proclaim the message of the gospel. She's the first preacher of the gospel. Of all the people God could have chosen, Peter, uh, he could have raised up Paul at this point for it. He could have sent an angel to do that. But the first messenger of the gospel to the world was a woman who was a demon-possessed woman that God had delivered. He doesn't use perfect people. He doesn't just use Billy Graham. He uses normal people, and Billy Graham would tell you he's normal. Not anymore, he won't, but he would have. I mean, the, the, the fact is, there's so much to this story, if you catch it beyond what he's teaching, and you just soak it in, you begin to realize who this Jesus is. This Jesus, he wasn't here to turn over the church or the Jewish religion. 
He was here to actually tell what they were supposed to be doing. He was here to show about the love of God. He was here to sit with a woman who was immoral at the side of a well of a place that no Jew would have gone. Why? Because Romans 3.22 says that we are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus Christ to take away our sins. He did not come to start a new religion. He did not come to fulfill the Jewish person's dream. He came to save people. And we can all be saved in the same way no matter who we are or what we've done. Did you catch that? No matter who we are or what we've done. For we have all sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. No matter who we are or what we've done. No matter what your color is, your socioeconomic status, your sin, you can be saved. Yet now God in His gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus, who has freed us by taking away our sin. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. God is angry. Jesus satisfies that anger. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed His blood, sacrificing His life for us. It's as simple as that. It's not about joining a church. It's not about being part of a movement. It's not about being a good American. You don't have to be a Republican or a liberal. You can be a socialist or a communist. You can, you can be whatever. You can be an adulterer. And you can find forgiveness for your sins through Jesus Christ, no matter who you are or what we've done. And that's what Easter's about. That's what the resurrection is about. That's what the gospel's about. Jesus coming by order of the Trinity to seek and save anyone, anywhere who has committed any sin, no matter what their socioeconomic status or their heritage. Jesus came to seek them out, to save them, to seek you out, to save you. And I'm saying this to you believers because something happens to us. We get saved and we're excited about Him for a few weeks and then we kind of fall into some malaise and then we fall into sin and we all have secret sins. And we sort of believe that we're saved, but we don't think we can be intimate with God because of the secret things that we've done. And I'm here to tell you that nothing you've done in secret God wasn't aware of when He died on the cross for your sins. He loves you. And I want to go farther. You've heard this your whole life. I want to go farther, and I've said this before. I want you to know that He doesn't just love you like your grandmother. He likes you. He actually is fond of you. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? Show me the verse. He made you. He made you overly emotional or too tough at times, harsh with words. He made you dramatic. He made you stoic. He made you good at accounting or lousy at accounting. He made you. And he likes who you are. He just wants to perfect it and make it in his image. So he can use you when you go to Walmart and you're hanging out with people wearing boots, no t-shirt, short jeans, and a cowboy hat, because those are the Samaritans. And they're drinking water, and you drink out of their cup. Half of you just cringe. It's true. It's what Jesus does here. And I, I'm not saying at this moment you need to go do that this afternoon. I'm simply telling you that is your Lord and Savior. That's who Jesus really is. Jesus didn't put on a hot dog giveaway outside of Walmart. He went in and found a woman drinking a glass of water and asked her if he could have a sip of her cup. That changes the game. 
The woman was surprised, verse 9, look again. For Jews were refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're better than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus is no longer talking with this woman about physical water any more than he was talking with Nicodemus about crawling back in his mother's womb. This is now about spiritual rebirth. This is about life. Also like Nicodemus, this woman thought that her Samaritan religion was good enough, that it met her spiritual needs. And I want to I point something out about what the Samaritan woman does here. She's actually not stupid. She's not dumb. She's not, uh, she's not going, what are you talking about, sir? She's actually talking about religion. She actually asked Jesus in this question, you think you're better than us? She's tired of thinking the Jews thinking they're better than him. She goes into a discussion about this well and claims that that well belongs to the Samaritans, not to the Jews. That Jacob and Joseph are theirs. She's claiming a patriarchy. So not only do we have prejudice, but now we have religious prejudice. If you haven't caught it or not, she's offended at his words. She kind of bows up to this Jewish rabbi and asks him if he's presuming to be superior than Jacob. Samaritans and this woman were sick and tired of the arrogance of the Jews, thinking that they're better than them. But Jesus doesn't allow the conversation to be ruled by prejudice or religious differences. Very important. Jesus doesn't go there. We do. We let Satan distract us in a debate over evolution versus creation. I got news for you. It doesn't matter what people believe about creation. It's done. It's been done. It will never change history, and everybody will know one day. To debate whether or not you're Baptist or Catholic or Lutheran is a ridiculous debate. What you've done with Jesus Christ, or actually the better phrase is what you've allowed Jesus Christ to do with you is a better question. I mean, we, we, we and I, I get it, I mentioned this last week, uh, this, this is very impactful on our Sunday night Bible study a couple weeks ago, uh, Jeb, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it wasn't Jeb, Jeb lives next door. Um, Jared Pig uh, brought up a, a, a comment that, that has really kind of rocked me. If we ask each other, are you a Christian? Yes. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I accepted Christ as my Savior years ago, and I, I get that. But Jared was saying that's still the wrong answer because you can't save yourself by praying a prayer. It's God who saves you. Why are you saved? Because God chose to redeem you, because God brought you to himself, because you allowed him to do his magic on your life. Because you allowed him, that's what, that's what Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus was about. Nicodemus wanted to debate what they were doing for God. God wanted to tell Nicodemus, unless you're born from above Nicodemus, not born as a, as a child of Abraham, you won't see the kingdom of God. You see, too many of us forget that it's about God's work in our life, about a supernatural resurrection. That's what makes us children of God, not a birth, not a heritage, not a community, not even church attendance. It's God. We need to attend church to encourage each other, to build each other up, but that's not what makes us the children of the King. What makes us the children of the King is that we've been adopted through the blood of Jesus Christ into His family, and we keep talking in the church about what you can get out of it. We bow the knee to God because He's worthy of that. And yet somehow in all of that, He still meets with people like this woman at the well. And you. Verse 13, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give 
they'll never thirst again. It becomes fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. <laughs> That's what we expect Jesus to say. Kind of boring, a little bit religious or a little bit spiritual. She had to be sitting there going, what? Well, while you and I think that, she knows exactly what he's talking about because her response is snarky. Verse 15, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. How do I know it's, it's snarky? The next sentence. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come to this stupid well. I added stupid. That's Mark. Wait till my version comes out. And I won't, I won't have to come uh, here to get water. She knows he's not talking about physical water. How do I know that? Because she already started talking about Jacob's well. She knows he's offering her spiritual healing. The only way to prepare the soil of one's heart for the seed of God's truth is to plow up the ground at times and show how dry the soil really was. We've gotten really bad at that today. As kind and gentle and loving as Jesus is, she was a sinful person and he needed her to know that she needed his living water. So Jesus responds to her in verse 16. Go get your husband. Ouch. You all know where the story goes, right? You know where he's going with this. But I want you to put yourself in her shoes. She's sitting there having a debate with some Jewish rabbi that acts superior and better, for some reason has asked her for a drink. Now she's arguing with him about prejudice and religion. It's going to get deeper religiously in a moment. And now all of a sudden he told her to get her husband? Verse 17, I don't have a husband. The woman replied, <laughs> try this conversation with somebody. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. You can giggle, it's okay. Jesus goes in for the kill. You certainly spoke the truth about that. Jesus is a normal person. I know he's fully God, but he's having a real conversation with this woman. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Um, snarky. Listen to the next sentence. So tell me, why is it you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshiped? She doesn't like how intense this has gotten. She doesn't like this Jew. She doesn't like this conversation. She doesn't know how he knows her story. What she does know is that you think you're better than me. And this is a woman who's clearly seeking. You'll see that in a moment. But she doesn't like it. So she changes the conversation from her sin to two different religions. The Samaritan religion, that is pseudo-Judaism, and the religion of Judaism. It's too personal. I want to remind you that Jesus Christ did not come to have a discussion on religion any more than he came to discuss prejudices. He came to rescue this woman. He came to save her. The gospel is not about who you are or where you come from or what you've done, who your parents are or even where you worship. The truth is the gospel isn't even about your sin. It's about the one who can save you from it, who can take your punishment. Verse 21, Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we, knew, we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews, and I want you to pause for a minute, I want you to take a breath, 
I'm going to say something. I'm not going to get deeply into the doctrine here because she knows what he's saying. I'll point that out in a second too. And it's not important for this morning's lesson that you understand all the dialogue here. But I do want to make one thing really clear. Jesus is saying, I know you want to debate on Samaritan religion versus Jewish religion. Let me be clear. They're not equal. Not every religion is equal. The Jewish religion is the religion with which the Messiah would come. And being a Samaritan doesn't make you equal to what God is going to do through the Jewish people. However, that's not the debate he wants to have. But he does make it clear, and I want to be clear, that not all religions are equal. Whether it's Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, there is an advantage to evangelicalism. That is because the truth is preached in evangelicalism. There is an advantage to Jewish over Samaritan religion. Why? Well, listen to what he said again. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we knew Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, and indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Without getting into a long, drawn-out theological discussion, and it doesn't really matter, and the ramifications of Jesus' words here, I just want you to understand that salvation or evangelicalism is not a team sport. We encourage each other, but salvation is an individual act. It's not something you get by being a Jew. It's not something you get by being a, a, a Samaritan. It's not even something you get by being a Baptist. The time has come now when a person is saved by worshiping personally in spirit and in truth. This is between you and God. And I just want to take this moment to say to those of you who, who refuse to accept Jesus Christ's offer to forgive you because you don't like the church, they are a lousy reason to go to hell. The church can't condemn you and it can't save you. It can tell you about salvation. But be careful to understand that Jesus Christ offers you water that offers you life. And if you spend the rest of your life angry at the church that abused you, and I understand that many have been, or if you spend your time angry at the church that doesn't deal with morality in a gentle and upstanding way that you wish they would, I just want to make it clear that you may, in fact, spend the rest of your life angry at the church, but you will only be condemned after. Run to Jesus, then run to the church and fix them. I'm so tired of hearing that the church is full of hypocrites. Duh! You may quote me. Of course we're hypocrites. That's why we gather, to be pointed out right. That's why we're studying this on Jesus. That's exactly why we're doing it, because we recognize, and I speak on behalf of we, Carpenter's Way, we recognize we're wrong on Jesus. We recognize we're wrong. That's why we're taking the courage to relook at this. That's why, you know how this impacts me? Because I've laughed at people at Walmart. Samaritan-type people. I, I've made jokes. You can ask my kids. They're funny, but they're inappropriate. Jesus wouldn't laugh at my joke. He'd get out of the car while I'm going 50 miles an hour and spend dinner with them. Jesus would have gone into the house where the cockroaches are all over the floor. Seriously. And not because he wanted to do social justice, but because he came to offer even people with cockroaches in their house eternal life. Not hot dogs. Not shoes. Not coats. Those are all fine things. But you realize Satan wants us off point. He wants us helping people's socioeconomic status and not their, their souls. They can be done simultaneously, but I assure you that if you take Jesus plus politics, you end up with politics. Jesus plus a, soci, uh, a, a, a social justice message ends up as a social justice message. Jesus is not a social justice warrior. He's 
He breaks social rules. He ministers to people. He goes and sits in the crowd of immigrants and tells them about himself. He actually asks them to feed him with very little food. This is crazy. I want you to think again. He was asking her to use her cup to pull up their water and give him a drink. He was going to put his lips where their lips had been. Do you know why I think the disciples weren't there? Because it says they were getting dinner. Do you know why they had to go get dinner? Because Jesus is hungry. No, he doesn't eat their food and it makes them mad later in the story. He sends them away because they would have been a distraction to his ministry. Are we? Church, are we? Are we a distraction to the work of the Lord at times? Does he have to send us away so he can do his work? Dear God, help us. We have to be careful. We have to be careful to remember that Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which is lost, no matter how lost, even if it's lost with all capital letters, because we're not quite as lost as they are. This guy was a radical, and the disciples didn't get it. I, I think that at some point they had to go, what have we chosen to follow? What are we doing here? This guy continually slaps our, our traditions and our hopes in the face, just like he does with you. I can't explain why two children died yesterday. I can't explain that, nor am I asked to. I'm just asked to keep following. But it doesn't seem, okay. So no matter what it is you want to fill in that gap, reasons you don't like God, you should write that down. Reasons I choose not to follow God. It can't be because he's not real. And I got to tell you something, you don't want to trifle with this one. He's still God. I said a couple weeks ago something, and I, I got a little conversation on it because it, it needs to create a conversation, just so you know. If God wasn't merciful and he wasn't loving, and he walked in here and he was dressed like a biker, and he offered salvation to 15 people in this room and nobody else, we'd still bow because he's God. And we don't get to choose whether we bow to God. You don't get to decide that. You may hate him. You may resent him. You may not like how he runs his universe but you still have to deal with the fact that he's divine. The good news is he is merciful. He is loving. And he asks for drinks of water from people that have germs that Jews wouldn't want to touch. You think our racial divide is back? bad? This is a hundred times worse. The time is coming, dear woman, when it won't matter anymore whether you worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And you benefit from that time. Not very few of you have ever been to Jerusalem. And none of us has ever seen the temple. You've seen pictures of the wall. But we've never been there. We don't even have to go there. There's no pilgrimage for Christians to the Holy Land. It may be wonderful for you to go, but you don't have to go. Why? Because that time has come. When Jesus died on the cross, so significant, and he said, it is finished, what happened next? Veil in the temple is ripped in two from top to bottom. Holy of holies exposed. The guys are in there preparing the lamb. They're, they're splattering blood all over it. They're, they're doing atonement. They're doing the Passover preparing. <laughs> Hello, tree. They're doing a Passover thing. And it rips open. And you know the point is? You can now enter the Holy of Holies. Actually, if you're a child of God, you are the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit lives within us. Everywhere we go, He goes. That's why it's normal for people who don't even believe in God. When they diagnose with cancer, you can say, I'm going to pray for you. Because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the prayer. You are the one who brings people to God. At Walmart. At churches. When you're buying a house. When you're selling a house. When you're getting ripped off by a carpenter. Whatever you're doing, you are the temple. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
when I'm in North Lubkin, when I'm in South Dallas, when I'm on the south side of Chicago, when I'm in my dentist's office, when I'm in my oncologist's office. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit everywhere I go, even when I'm tired and exhausted and thirsty. I'm still offering hope to people. There's a million reasons why Jesus shouldn't have a conversation with her and a million reasons why I wouldn't have had it with her. And one is, he's tired. He's tired. It says he's exhausted and he's thirsty. And this woman comes up and he gets this dialogue and she pushes back on him. She argues with him. Verse 25, the woman said, now she's serious. And, and we can talk another time about where I decide the people are being snarky and serious, but this turns serious here. You're going to hear her heart. I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. In other words, she's done with this debate. It's over. Okay, dude, you've gotten high and tight in my life. You know about my life. I don't know how you know it, but you're in my face. And I just want you to know I don't need any more from you. I got this worked out. You're right. I'm evil. And I'm waiting for the Messiah. In fact, I was at Mount Gerizim last week asking for the Messiah to come. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. We don't need you. So take the water and your little Jewish tassels and you move on. I added that. Jesus looks at her in verse 26. Look at this. <laughs> if that doesn't give you chills, you didn't have enough coffee. Gosh, is that awesome? I know, I've, I, I know I've belabored this whole story because you know the story. And I needed you to think about what's really going on. And I wanted you to hear the back and forth. I wanted you to see the prejudice. I wanted you to smell it. I wanted you to relate to it because we all got it. We've all got it. I wanted you to feel the religious tension. I wanted you to think, I would never have said that. That's pretty bold. I mean, come on, Jesus. Don't get in people's face. But he did all that for this second. She finally says, I'm waiting for the Messiah, but thank you very much. You could be a prophet, but be on your way. <laughs> I'm the Messiah. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine what was running through her mind at that moment? If you're looking for forgiveness of sin, if you're looking for peace with God, but you need hope at, le at least for the next life, Jesus is who you're looking for. In our search of who this guy is, that's who he is. He, honestly, he, he doesn't care if you're black. Doesn't care if you grew up on the, on the wrong side of the tracks. Doesn't care if you, he, you are white trash. And I say that with the deepest respect. Still trying to figure out the redneck thing. I know white trash is a slam, but it depends what radio station you listen to. We've got events here called redneck hoedowns, and that's supposed to be a good thing. I don't, I don't know. I'm afraid to say it, so I don't, but I do have cowboy boots now. And I bought my first pair of Wrangler jeans. If you laugh at me, I'll never wear them again. No, I'm not wearing them right now. Jesus doesn't care. Doesn't care if you're an effeminate male or you're a masculine male. Doesn't care if you're a masculine woman or an effeminate woman. Doesn't care. Doesn't care if your thing is decoration or decoding computers. Doesn't care. And he apparently doesn't care if you're a Samaritan or a Jew. Doesn't care if you worship at the temple in Salt Lake City. Doesn't care if you go to a Catholic church to Mass three times a week. Doesn't care if you're a Baptist. There's only one thing that matters. 
who or what is your Messiah? He is the Messiah. He's the one. He's the one you're looking for. I'm here to tell you this morning, He is the one you're looking for. Jesus Christ is all you're looking for. We, we can point you to Him, but we're not the ones. You guys online, you're, you know, I, I'm glad you're listening, and, and I want you to know that the church isn't the answer either. Jesus is the answer, and then, then the church will help you. We'll, we'll grow each other up, but it's important, but it isn't the core. The core is Jesus. It's Jesus all day, every day, all the time. And I want to make it clear. Jesus did not come to make you a better version of yourself, to make you feel good about yourself. He didn't come to make you pretty or feel pretty or, or to make you handsome or masculine. He came to make you his. He came to make you like himself. That's also muddying the waters in evangelicalism today. You have low self-esteem? Need Jesus. He'll make you feel better about yourself. No, 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 he won't. He'll make you feel better about him. His instructions are take your eyes off yourself. Stop looking in the mirror. Stop taking selfies. You are worse off than you think. Do you know what? When you take selfies, you take five of them. And you do all different things. You do this side, and then you do that side. You do that side, and then you... Why? And then you filter them all. It is amazing how young some of you look on Instagram. I've got another side. You know, it's good to take pictures, but stop looking at your selfies. Look at Jesus. Satan wants us looking at selfies. Even in the church, he wants us to say, we're so pretty and beautiful and wonderful. Aren't we better? We're no better than any other church in this community. We may be differently focused, but we're no better. We are saved by Jesus or not saved by Jesus. And not being saved by Jesus means that there's no eternal life. So my unsaved friend, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one you're looking for. Run to him. And my saved friend, don't forget Jesus is the Messiah and we are not. It is not on us to make sure that gay marriage is not the law of the land. It is on us to make sure people, that, that people with same-sex attraction know that Jesus saves people of same-sex attraction. It is not on us to get people out of Rivercrest and to get them on this side of Lovekin. It is our job to go into Rivercrest and tell them that even while living there, Jesus is the Messiah. It is our job not to make sure that people vote right, but to make sure that they know that Jesus loves them and will redeem them no matter how they vote or if they vote at all. It is our, not our job to make sure America doesn't go socialist. It is our job to make sure that Americans know that Jesus is the Savior, not the political establishment. It's our job. It's Jesus' job. Jesus does not, do you see in this text, she wants to have a religious discussion, she wants to have a prejudice discussion, and Jesus has nothing to do with it. He keeps turning it around until eventually he says, you really need saving. You really need my water. Oh, you're a prophet. Don't worry. We got the Messiah coming. Surprise! Verse 27. Just when they're having a great conversation, guess who shows up? Just then the disciples come back. And I think this is awesomely written. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. Of course they were. Because they thought he was establishing a Jewish kingdom that had certain moral rules that he couldn't break. It doesn't even add here, at least, at least John was courageous enough not to add a Samaritan woman at that. I love the next line, but none of them had the nerve to ask. <laughs> They'd had a rough couple months. Let's give them some time off. They didn't ask him, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? Verse 28. 
the woman left her jar beside the well and ran back to the village. Just enough distraction to freak out and run off. She told everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one we've been waiting for? Is this him? Is it him? Like Andrew with his brother Peter and, and John, like John with his brother James and Philip with his brother Nathaniel, something happens within them that they can't help themselves. So they run and they simply declare, come and see this guy. Do you remember when you were so excited about what Jesus Christ had done in your life, you couldn't stop but telling people to come and see him? Look what happens, verse 30. So people came streaming from the village to see him. Verse 39, I'm jumping down nine verses. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. Oh, could you imagine? Oh, how precious the disciples' thoughts were then. I mean, I, I, I picture it. Okay, so there's, tw there's 12 there, right, with Jesus, and he's talking to this woman, and they're like, who is they? He's talking to a woman. They start dialoguing. You're going to find out they're mad because he's not hungry. They, went, they had to go to the Samaritan village and get food, <laughs> Samaritan food. They come back with the food, and they didn't want to go there in the first place. So they come back with the food, and Jesus is talking to this woman. Then, they run off, then she runs off. They're probably relieved at that moment. They have this conversation about food, but as they're debating with Jesus about food, the whole village comes out. That must have been a good, a good moment for those 12. I love it. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus. I already, I already said that. They begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two more days. <laughs> That's how I know he wasn't in a hurry. <laughs> sure, I'll stay. Come on, guys. Let's go find rooms to sleep in. Samaritan sheets. Samaritan water for two days. Samaritan food. Can you imagine what Peter was thinking? He's the loudmouth of the group. He stayed for two days. Verse 41. What does it say? Is it up there? <laughs> Just long enough for more to hear his message and believe. You see, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. So whosoever believeth in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. Including Samaritan, half-breed, wrongly worshiping Samaritan. Verse 42, then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard it for ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. John 6, 23 you put that up there for me, Kevin? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's better than an Easter bunny. It's better than chocolate or hidden eggs. Happy Easter, my friends. Happy Easter. Seriously, happy Easter. For the wages of sin is death. You've been married five times, ma'am. How'd you know that? Well, and even the guy you're living with, it's not your husband, so you just decide not to pretend anymore. I got good news, though. I'm offering the free gift of eternal life. What? And so he offers it to you. Don't be satisfied with chocolate bunnies this season. Accept this free gift. How do I do that? Don't make it complicated. 
tell him you want it. It's already been paid for. He's already died. He's not going to die again. The blood's been shed. Your name's been written on the paper. You just got to sign off. I accept. I believe. Come get your gift. But family, there's something else important for us to remember this morning. Verse 31 says this, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. This is right after they come back. I'm jumping in past. Sometimes as churches, as God's disciples, as his faithful servants, we're more busy with our moral compasses and what people will think or that our fries are getting cold than we are the lost. And Jesus replied to them, verse 32, I have the kind of food that you know nothing about. Did somebody bring him food while we were gone, the disciples asked each other? <laughs> Isn't it nice that John recorded this for us, despite the fact that we're giggling at his foolishness? Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest? But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are, are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awakes both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants, another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others have already done work, and now you will get to gather the harvest, even Samaritans. And it's after that they go to the Samaritan visit, village and stay for two more days. Listen to Dr. McLeod one more time. I simply argue that the cross should be raised at the center of the marketplace as well as at the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town's garbage heap, at a crossword so cosmopolitan they would write his title in Hebrew and Latin and Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about. So, that is where churchmen ought to be, and what churchmen ought to be about. Let's go get them. Let's go harvest. Let's go. When people treat you wrong, when a cop pulls you over, when you, when you get bad service at Applebee's, when your students don't treat you with the respect that you deserve, when your pastor's a silly guy, whatever, no matter what your situation, you are sent ones, harvesting where you didn't plant. Go get them. Go get them. This week, it's, it's Passion Week. It's the week when Jesus was preparing to die and they were preparing to kill him. And people are talking about this. Invite that one person at the office you don't like Friday at 3 o'clock to our Good Friday service. Well, they want nothing to do with it. How do you know that? Maybe the reason they're unlikable is because they're miserable. Well, I, you know, if I bring them, they're going to start asking me. Yes, they will. Don't bring them to church to hear from me. Bring them to church because this is where you worship. Invite people in, your gay neighbors. Invite them in. Have dinner. Invite them to Easter dinner to eat ham over the resurrection of a Jewish Savior. <laughs> it's so weird. I know. I make the joke twice a year, and then we move on, Easter and Christmas. Wherever you go, go harvest. Harvest at church. Harvest at work. Harvest in your home. Harvest over the back fence. Harvest at the bar. Harvest at the gym. Go harvest. Somebody just went, he said at the bar. I did. I did. I did say harvest at the bar. Over a glass of wine. Give them Jesus. Give them Jesus. 
And when people ask you, how could a loving God allow two children to die, tell them the truth. I don't know. I don't know. But it doesn't make him any less God. He's good and merciful and kind. Next time you watch on TV someone of a different race that says something mean against your race, instead of getting mad at them, pray for them. When somebody wears their pants lower than you prefer them to, instead of telling your spouse how offensive that is to you, thank the Lord that their underwear is clean and pray for them. Next time somebody's car hops at the stoplight and their music is too loud and you immediately gutter up and you say, I hate that. Pray for them. Next time your president wants to talk about a group of people in general, I know, I'm going to get emails on that. Pray for that group. Next time somebody on the other side of the aisle that you're not on says something stupid about you, pray for them. Pray for them. And if you get contact with them and you've only got 30 seconds, ask them for a cup of water. They'll freak out. Ministry. Go get them, people. It doesn't just have to be a church. It's out there in the marketplace. It's our weakness. It's our weakness. Go get them, people. Go harvest. If you are here this morning, and you don't know the Messiah. He's right there waiting for you to call out to him. I would love to pray for you. I would love to pray with you. To be truthful with you, you don't even have to walk up here and talk to me. The person next to you would love to pray with you. They might freak out a little bit because they never have, but they will. So freak them out. There's enough, there's enough that needs to change. Freak us out. But we are here to tell you about Jesus Christ, not about us. And if after you meet him, you're looking for a place to grow up and laugh and be changed, Join us, but not before you get saved. We can't do anything for you outside of Jesus. But once you meet him, we're in this together. Right? Let's close in prayer. Thank you for loving Samaritans, because we're Gentiles, and you offered us salvation. May we never forget that. For those, Father, who do not know you as their Messiah, as their Savior, the one who forgave their sins, may today be the day they accept your offer to forgive them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in about 10 minutes.